Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Nadia Hallgren, director of Civil. Here's Nadia's description of the film. Civil follows civil rights attorney Ben Frump for one year in his life over the course of 2020 to 2021, while he is at the forefront of defending his clients that included George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery. Civil had its world premiere at the 2022 Tribeca Film Festival. Nadia Hallgren is a multi-Emmy nominated director. Her feature documentary, Becoming, released in 2020, follows Michelle Obama as she tours the United States with her best-selling memoir of the same name. Nadia is also director of an episode in the limited series Black and Missing, and she directed the six-part series She's the Ticket, as well as the 2019 short After Maria. Civil is a project that was born during the pandemic, and it was interesting to hear how Nadia was stuck at home trying to figure out her next career move. She had just come off Becoming, which was hugely successful, and she had lots of offers coming her way. But in the wake of George Floyd, she just didn't feel like accepting any of those offers. And so as she describes it, she just sat there day after day trying to figure out what is the urgent story that I need to be telling. And that's when the story of Ben Crump and Civil came knocking on Nadia's door. I was curious to hear how her experience shooting and directing Becoming informed the making of Civil. And there were definitely some similarities there and some differences as well. The centerpiece of this film is Ben Crump working with the George Floyd family on their Civil suit. And it was really eye-opening and touching to see Ben meeting with the family and working with them to try to get justice. There's also many other cases that Ben Crump is working on at the same time in this period. He is just a force of nature. One of the more memorable cases featured in the film is that of Andre Hill, a black man killed by police in Columbus, Ohio in 2020. And that is a truly unforgettable scene in the movie. It was also interesting to see how Ben Crump works on other cases besides police excessive force, such as banking while black cases and the case of a black farmer. These are all pieces of the story of black America and the discrimination and the injustices that black Americans have been subjected to for decades and decades. Finally, it was really moving to hear how making this film changed Nadia. And I can also say that watching this film had a huge impact on me as well. Civil is available now on Netflix, the presenting sponsor of Top Talks. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Twitter at Top Docs Pod. And now my conversation with Nadia Hallgren, director of Civil. Nadia Hallgren, welcome to Top Docs. Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me. You bet. And congratulations on the film. It's tremendous and incredibly moving. Thank you. I really appreciate that. So in the opening minutes of Civil, we see Ben Crump, the civil rights attorney, on the phone with George Floyd's cousin, Tara Brown, shortly after George Floyd's murder. And Ben is expressing his condolences and telling Tara what he's going to do next as the family's lawyer. He then says, you are not alone, Tara. For me, this very simple declarative sentence really embodies who Ben Crump is and how he connects with families like the Floyd family. 
Can you elaborate on what makes Ben Crump unique and why he is, quote, the go-to person in these terrible, tragic situations? One thing that really struck me when I first started to follow Ben over the course of making this film was the way that he manages families that are in shock, tremendous grief, confusion, all these things that happen when a family member was very unexpectedly murdered and under horrific circumstances. And that is its own skill in and of itself, because what Ben has to do is really descend on this situation and have many things going at one time. First off, it is comforting the families. It's knowing what to say and how to say it, but also being a lawyer and knowing that there is a brief window of time when these incidents occur that the story either comes out and people know about it or it doesn't. And someone's name is never heard. And so really trying to get the family to, while they're grieving, carry out these set of tasks, like talk to the press and plan a funeral and go to a press conference and think about talking points. There's so many things happening at this time, as well as Ben really thinking about legal strategy. And as we know in these police excessive force cases, that immediately, oftentimes, the victim is painted in a very bad light by the police department in order to get ahead of the story and sort of justify why this person deserved whatever happened to them. So I would say that Ben is multitasking on a level that I had probably never experienced before. And I want to get into his strategy and the skills that he shows in these situations a little bit later, but I want to stick with this opening sequence of the film for just a moment. In this first sequence, Ben is on the phone with Tara. He's standing in front of his office window, so he's backlit practically in silhouette because of the lighting. Then there's a cut and we see him sitting at his office desk. And he's holding his head, his shaved head, which is very distinctive, uh, in his hands. And he's shaking his head from side to side. It's a gesture we'll see several times throughout the film. And it's not a gesture I'd normally associate with a lawyer. It really shows, I think, how personal this is for Ben and how deeply these tragedies affect him. Can you talk about shooting this opening sequence and editing these two shots together to such powerful effect? Absolutely. So the images that we use at the beginning of the film are sort of, what's the right way to say it? They're impressionistic, I would say. We were not with Ben Crump when he received this phone call from the George Floyd family. However, all the phone calls that he receives through his office line are recorded. And so we were able to get access to that recording with permission from the Floyd family because we wanted to tell the story also of how this moment where the George Floyd family connected with Ben, how it happened and was the catalyst for these events that we see for the rest of the film, as well as we end the film with the trial of Derek Chauvin, the police officer that murdered George Floyd. So we had decided that we were going to bookend the film with the first contact of Ben Crump and the Floyd family and where that story ended. We use these impressionistic images to give a visual bed for this phone call, if you will. And I would say that every day with Ben is many variations of those types of phone calls. Obviously, what happened with George Floyd was very specific. And the 
video and the extent of the video, the clarity of the video, the length of the video, the thoughtfulness in the way that the video was not cut. The young woman, Darnella Frazier, held those shots and created something that was so powerful and documented that torture in a very specific way. But there are many times when Ben gets these sort of phone calls. So at the time when I filmed that opening sequence, that was not George Floyd's cousin on the phone on the other end. But I would say that the most emotion I've seen from Ben, when Ben is very upset, that's what he does is he holds his head. And I think, like you mentioned, you see that happen in different times in the film. He has a high threshold for tragedy, unfortunately, because it's something he experiences often. But when I see that type of body language from him, that's when I know that something just beyond the usual has occurred. And so decided to use that sequence of images to, again, impressionistically tell the story of that first phone call. It's a testament to the fact that you were so tuned in to Ben that you were able to capture and understand his body language to such a great extent. It kind of becomes this visual motif almost in the film that connects directly with his character and, and what he's going through. I would also say, you know, I'm not surprised to hear that that wasn't him actually taking that phone call. I, for me, that was clear, but yet you did it in such a way that was both creative and authentic. So hats off to you and your team. Thank you. As you know, that is the hardest part of the film. That's the that was part of the film. I think we agonized over more than any. As you said, the film follows one year in the life of Ben Crump. First of all, how did you originally become aware of this extraordinary attorney and the work he was doing? I had seen Ben Crump on TV around the Trayvon Martin murder and some other events. So I was familiar with him. And then around the murder of George Floyd, most of us were home watching the news. We were under quarantine at that time from the pandemic. I was seeing Ben on TV every day and obviously took much more notice of him. So I would say that was the extent of me knowing anything about Ben Crump. However, my last film prior to Civil Becoming had been released just a, a few months prior. And I had been getting a lot of opportunities to direct different types of films and series and things like that. But with everything that was happening in the world, as a Black filmmaker, I really felt like if I was going to leave my house and go out there during the height of the pandemic, that it had to be for a really good reason. And that I felt in my heart, I have to be making a film about what's happening right now. And so I said no to everything and I just stayed at home. And every day I sat at my table and I just was like, I will do this every day and think about how I can tell a story about this moment until I figure it out. And I get a phone call that Kenya Barris knows Ben Crump and have been working with him on a fiction project. And at that time, his deal was with Netflix. And so Netflix had a conversation with Kenya. They were just like, we think that there's a documentary to be made right now with Ben Crump. Kenya loved the idea and was like, I need a documentary filmmaker. Netflix suggested me and gave me a call, asked if I'd be interested in a film about Ben Crump. And I felt like my prayers were being answered in many ways. And that night jumped on a call with Kenya and then probably was on the phone with Ben within a day or two and decided that this was the next film that I was gonna make. That's incredible. And gosh, I wish it worked that way more often. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Meaning a really important critical of the moment topic being matched with the right filmmaker and a streamer or somebody in a position to make it happen, helping make it happen. 
Yeah, making that happen very quickly was key because it was all unfolding. And that's something that Netflix, with their infrastructure and their resources, were able to do. Just say, go and you don't need to give us a full treatment of what your plans are or anything like that, because we know it's happening and we trust you. And, you know, I have a relationship with them. And so it really gave me an opportunity to just jump in and get going. So you mentioned Becoming, which for folks who have a short attention span, this was the title of Michelle Obama's memoir. And also she did a blockbuster book tour around the publication of the book, and you followed her on this book tour for the movie, Becoming. I did want to ask you about it because it struck me that here's another situation where you're following this incredible person around the country in these kind of verite situations. I was curious, as a filmmaker, what did you learn following Michelle Obama around on that tour that you were able to apply to the making of Civil? Well, I would definitely say that I learned so much following Mrs. Obama around that it's hard to even separate what I learned as a filmmaker versus what I learned as a human being, because it was just such an extraordinary experience. My background in documentary is I have been a verite cinematographer for 15, between 15 and 20 years. I started out as a production assistant about 20 years ago. I knew I wanted to be a cinematographer and I knew I wanted to shoot verite and I was very lucky to meet early on Kirsten Johnson, who many know of as an extraordinary cinema verite, there as well as cinematographer. And she mentored me. And so that was my track that I came up in in film. And part of what got me the job working with Mrs. Obama was the skills that I had to be able to very quickly jump into a on a moving train, something that was already happening, and have a small footprint. Traveling with Mrs. Obama, as you can imagine, with Secret Service and all the other logistical things that come with that is difficult. And the more people you add to that, the more difficult it gets. So knowing that whomever it was that would be tasked with trying to make a film, had to really be able to work solo sometimes if needed. And so because I came up in low budget documentary filmmaking, you know, a lot of my early assignments as a kid was go out with a camera and a log and some headphones and a couple lenses and batteries in a backpack and go out and film. And so really that was what got me in the seat with Mrs. Obama. Of course, that skill plus meeting her in person and feeling like it was a good chemistry and that's what ultimately I did the exact same thing with Ben Crump. We were at the height of the global pandemic. Most production had shut down at that time. If not, people were in these bubble situations. There was extensive types of COVID protocols that were in place. And with Ben, he moved so quickly. We could be filming with him somewhere, have a plan, a phone call comes in, the plans change, we're going somewhere else. Now we're not going home for four more days. We didn't expect that. You know, you really have to be nimble. And at that time, not only was it dangerous to bring more people out on shoots, but it was scary. And to keep up with those COVID protocols was difficult. So I used a lot of the experience that I had, again, early on, the same experience I used filming with Michelle Obama, just grabbing my camera, my kit, what I had, my producer. I was very lucky that she agreed to come with me on these shoots. At that time, that was the first time we had left our homes in months and really just jumping in with Ben. And so I would say that those are definitely some of the things that helped prepare me. And then just the ability to be with and be present with high profile individuals who are definitely focused on what it is they're doing in this mission. 
So figuring out that right balance of the verite observationalness of filmmaking while still doing my best to capture the other parts of filmmaking that are just as important, the emotions, the humor, the complexity, the character, all these things that we try to include in the films that we make, I would say. One of the things that struck me watching the film is one of perhaps your most simple tasks, but also your most difficult was deciding when to stop shooting. There are all these different cases that Ben has, and you have to decide, okay, I'm going to stay with him in this location following this case, and then I'm going to stop this, and I'm going to come back to it. You really had to make a lot of decisions about when to start and stop filming and where to go and where not to go and which cases to follow and which ones not to follow. How did you do that? Did you have tons of spreadsheets? You know, what yeah. was that whole process like? Ken, you are you're a very observational person to see just how much decision making went into that. It's interesting with some films, the challenge is not enough is happening. And with making a film with Ben Crump, there was too much happening. So we had that uh, and everything is important and everything matters and one tragedy feels worse than the previous one and circumstances are different and those are important. And we also wanted to show that Ben didn't only handle police excessive force cases, but he also did banking while black and black farmers. So it's not just with law enforcement, but it's when you try to go cash a check. It's when you know a farmer is trying to make a living and gets cut out of opportunities that white farmers get. It's just everywhere. And so... It was agonizing. It was a lot of conversations with my producer. It was really just kept going back to what type of film do we want to make and what story are we trying to tell? And does this story fit into that? Also finding opportunities for levity whenever possible because it is a really heavy film. It was hard and the edit was very challenging because of that. Also, it's like, you know, we wanted to honor every individual story that we filmed, but each story could be its own film almost. We also really wanted to reflect what the Ben Crump experience is like. So the Ben Crump experience is not taking the George Floyd case and working on that case every single day until it closes. Ben is just on the move. And we really wanted to have that feeling of what it is like to be Ben Crump. That's also why the film is not just following one case. It's following Ben and all the encounters that he has. Yeah, I also think you did a great job of conveying that by showing all those times when he's going through airports or he's, mm -hmm. you know, waiting in an airport at an airport gate. And of course, all those times when he's seemingly surgically attached to his cell phone. <laughs> yes. I wanted to go back to Becoming just for a second sure. before we move on and just say, you know, Michelle Obama Obviously, she has had horrible trolls and people saying terrible things about her and so on. But she's also one of the most admired human beings on the planet. Ben certainly has his admirers, too. But it's not just that he's not as well known, but he has a lot of detractors. And you show this in the movie. But I was just wondering, from your perspective, did those differences in how these two people are perceived affect the filmmaking process at all? And how did it shape the two portraits? Yeah, I think we'll start with Michelle Obama and being one of the most popular and most loved people on the entire planet. I think there's a lot of pressure as a filmmaker to meet an audience's expectation. I think the idea when you make a film about someone is you want to bring something that people haven't seen already or that they don't know. You want it to feel fresh and you want it to feel like they learned something and they had an experience. 
I think that for me was key. And I didn't know what quite to expect with Michelle Obama. But as I started to spend time with her and film with her, it's quite an experience of being with her because she's kind and warm and funny and brilliant. And just the way she expresses herself and has incredible comedic timing and all these things that I would never think about her as much as I admired her. I didn't know all these kind of more personal things about her, the relationship which she has with her brother and her mom. And so for me, especially as I started to spend more time with her and see that, and then as we were working in the edit, the goal was really, what story can we tell about Michelle Obama that people don't already know? What are the things about her? Again, the humor, the music she listens to, all these little bits of texture that add up to something that feels completely fresh and new. So I think that was the approach with her. With Ben, I knew a lot less about him, and I knew that there was a lot of criticism around him. I went into it with a completely open mind and not judgmental one way or the other. But as I got to know Ben, he's an individual that I incredibly admire. He's honest, he's truthful, he doesn't back down, he fights for the right things, in my opinion. His character really emerged to me, I think in the same way that the audience experiences it in the film. I went in saying, I don't know much about this person. I'm not going to assume he's all great. And I'm not going to assume that he's terrible. I have nothing to go with. And as I get to know him, we're going to get to know each other. And that's kind of how it is when you spend such intimate time with people on the road. Even with Michelle Obama, you're in their hotel room from five in the morning while they're getting dressed, when their families call them on the phone. There's not a whole lot of privacy. And so I think you get to understand someone's character in a way that they can't even really hide it if they give you that access. And with both of them, I got that. And so I would say with Ben, it was more of a discovery period. And the Ben that I got to know is the Ben that I tried to show in the documentary as much as possible. You did have great access. And part of that is seen through the scenes with Ben and his family in Tallahassee, where he grew up and he still practices law. What did you learn about Ben Crump from watching him around his extended family that you didn't realize or know when you were watching Ben Crump, the lawyer? Ben calls his mom every day. <laughs> he calls her probably multiple times a day, I would actually say. He loves his mom and she's really such a force in his life and such a moral compass. And that was surprising to me, but also very sweet. And I think said a lot about who he is. The relationship that he has with his wife, I think oftentimes people would assume that he's often not home and that there would be some type of resentment or something like that within his marriage. But his wife is incredible and supportive and it's just lovely and wonderful. And there was never a time when he called her or vice versa that there wasn't just love on the phone. And again, her understanding that the work that he does is so important, but also keeping him in the loop of what was happening in her life and their daughter's life at home and going on with her own life and what she was up to. All these things were surprising, I guess, in the sense that when you don't know much about someone and you learn these little moments, it's quite special, I think. He has a very warm and loving family that I feel very lucky that I got to know over the course of us filming together. One of the things that I noticed, and I actually didn't pick up on this until I watched the film, I think a second time, was that prior to going with Ben to Tallahassee, it follows Ben quoting George Floyd just before his death, calling for his mother. Mm -hmm. Then when you see Ben with his mother, yeah. it makes it all the more tragic. Yeah. Thank you for noticing that. It's emotional and also 
as a filmmaker, I appreciate that you allow yourself to connect with that emotion and be open to it. So thank you. So let's keep leaning into the emotion. Let's talk about the scene with the family of Andre Hill, mm. a young mm. black man who was killed by police in Columbus, Ohio. Quoting Ben, he says in the film, he said, there's video now, but without someone to orchestrate everything, it just becomes one of 1,200 to 1,300 police killings that nobody remembers their name. We then see how in meeting with the family, he's not only comforting them, but He's crafting a narrative with the family that is going to evolve into a media strategy and a legal strategy. So we see him beginning to do this kind of orchestration. What can you tell us about how you witnessed Ben in these many meetings with family members, work with them in these difficult moments to take their personal tragedy and turn it into a public strategy that they can employ to get justice? Thank you for bringing that scene up. And I think for me, that was, of course, such an important scene to include in the film, but probably one of the moments where I understood Ben from really what he does. You know, it was the day after Christmas. We go to Columbus, Ohio. It's freezing cold. Ben walks into the home of very angry, righteously angry family who just lost someone that was so special to them. A father, a brother... And they're mad. They are very mad. And they're mad at everyone and they have every right to be. And the way Ben walks into that room and starts asking questions, and as you said, figuring out what happened and what type of person Andre Hill was and who was the right family members to speak up on his behalf and the details in his story and that the suit that he would be wearing for his funeral was the suit that he just walked his sister down the aisle in and why it was so special to him. I get emotional thinking about it. The genius of what Ben does is he can relate to people and give them the opportunity to share these stories and lock into every detail and help them craft what they're going to say to the press while knowing what's important to say to the press and also thinking about the legal strategy at the same time and what he thinks they should say and what they shouldn't say just yet based on how early in the case it is. I don't think every lawyer can do that. Ben's background, the way he was raised by his grandmother and his mother, the fact that he comes from the deep South, the fact that he's a man of a lot of faith, that he has a warmth to him, that he can walk into any room. And as you see by the end of that scene, there the family is laughing, reminiscing about their brother, and feeling empowered that there's a chance that the death of their loved one isn't completely in vain and it's not going to be completely ignored and that they may see some type of justice in a matter of a 20-minute conversation is pretty extraordinary. And they did see justice to the extent, obviously, they could never get their family member back. But because of Ben not only working on the civil side, I think they reached like the highest amount awarded ever in the state of Ohio for the murder of Andre Hill through Ben and his team. But he also puts tons of pressure on the criminal prosecution of these officers. And that officer did get charged. And that is very rare. That does not always happen. And so there's a lot of power in what Ben does on both sides. Seeing that strategy, we kind of called it Ben's playbook. And we really wanted to show that to the audience play out. In one scene that was very cohesive, it was a special moment for me. 
and I think for the film. You touch on something that I found actually very educational about the film, which is this distinction and relationship between the civil cases and the criminal side. It got me wondering, you know, Ben is hired on the civil side, obviously, but how is he kind of working around, working with what he knows about the criminal case as he's working the civil side? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, a lot of things we weren't able to include in the film because we only have a certain amount of time. But Ben speaks to this in the Trayvon Martin trial and why the failure for the prosecutors that had nothing to do with Ben to be able to get justice for the Trayvon Martin's family and send George Zimmerman to jail, that would never leave him. His conscience was just so distraught by that. Going back to the criticism, a lot of the criticism around Ben Frump was that he loses because many people didn't understand that if George Zimmerman didn't go to jail, that that had nothing to do with Ben Crump and his legal strategy. And you could say that for many other cases. So what Ben does is by constantly being on the news, by constantly talking about the case, by doing what he can to bring to light the prosecutors and the law enforcement that need to hold individuals accountable for this. As he says, like, we don't take our foot off the gas. Like, even if the civil suit is settled, you will still see him talking about a case. Even after that, after he settled the Breonna Taylor suit, he still kept at it, where even just now, recently, we've seen some of those officers actually be criminally charged and convicted and people getting in trouble for lying on the search warrants for Breonna Taylor and things like that. And Ben kept at it. He kept her name in the press. So I think that for him, that's always important because for him, justice isn't just that the civil settlements are won, but it's actually justice to the fullest extent of the law. It's civil justice and it's criminal justice, whether or not he has any control over that. And Ben has a lot of relationships and he knows how to get to the right people and influence them, if you will, share his opinion with people, whether or not he's actually in that courtroom. Soon after showing the Trayvon Martin case in the film, you show some footage of Ben being interviewed following the outcome of a case from 2006 in which Ben seems really gutted by the outcome of this case. Mm -hmm. And I'll just quote him. He said, this was our chance at holding police accountable for killing a minority. And unfortunately, it's like you hear a lot of more senior African-Americans say, we don't expect equal justice. It's not our reality. And then Ben goes on, I guess only time will tell. History is history. I thought it was a really incredible moment in the film because probably for the only time in the film, he looks totally defeated, totally hollowed out, beaten down. But it struck me is that it also sets the stake for the George Floyd case. Yeah. Because that case some 15 years later is sort of history's response. What were you thinking when you came upon this 2006 footage and how did you figure out how to use it in the film? Yeah, when we came upon that footage, it was pretty incredible because it was, what, 15 years earlier. And Ben is a younger man and he's saying the exact same thing that he's saying today. And I think what it showed us and hopefully showing the audience was Ben's messaging has not changed all this time. And again, I think for folks who are interested in criticizing Ben around that he's in it for the money and that he gets rich off of families, tragedies and stuff like that. I think it gives an opportunity to see a younger version of Ben at a different time in his life saying and doing the exact same things, but you also can understand why his approach has changed. He was devastated 
by cases earlier on that seemed like a no-brainer in terms of police being held accountable. When that didn't happen, I think it changed him as a person and it changed him as a lawyer. It felt like those same words he had been saying 15 years ago, he could be saying today and they would have just as much resonance and feel like they're of the same time. There's a clip in the film of an interview that Ted Koppel did with Ben in which mm -hmm. Ted asks him whether his rationale for defending Black people based on principles like liberty and equality wouldn't have more credibility if Ben wasn't making a lot of money off these cases, but rather Ted suggests he could take them on a pro bono basis. I cannot imagine a world in which Ted Koppel asks this question of a prestigious white lawyer like David Boyce or someone like mm -hmm. that. There does seem to be a certain amount of questioning of his motives or even his scruples, if not outright hostility toward him on the part of some in the white media establishment. How does Ben deal with this kind of covert and overt racism? And also just what was your take on it when you were watching Ben going about his work and then also going through the archives? Ben has an incredible way of going through life in a very focused manner. He knows that he cannot take his eyes off of what the goal is and listen to all the noise. He doesn't listen to it. He doesn't let it get under his skin. He knows it's not true. He's incredibly stoic. He does not show any emotion when folks say things like this. I think that he knows that the fact that these are conversations that are being had in the press and the public and the open, that it's because he's moving the needle and he's doing something that not a lot of people are happy with in terms of getting justice. And this is just a way to try and take him down and try to discredit the work that he does. Toward the end, the George Floyd case is resolving itself, and there's the emotional high point when this Minneapolis City Council votes to approve a $27 million settlement for the family. Prior to the announcement, Ben tells a reporter the city can't control what's going to happen in the criminal courts, but what they can do is exhibit responsible leadership. How do these civil suits and settlements serve a public function? Do you think they act as a kind of counterweight or hedging of bets against the unpredictability of what goes on in the criminal courts? I can tell you that Ben Crump has some different theories on why the amount of these civil se settlements matter. And part of it, frankly, is he believes that if people are forced to pay higher and higher amounts of money for killing Black people, that they will just stop killing Black people because they simply can't afford it. And if these municipalities and these police departments are paying out tens and tens of millions of dollars, they're not going to allow officers to remain on the force that have killed people prior, that have demonstrated incredible misconduct. You know, it starts saying like, this officer's a liability, we have to fire them. Whereas what we know is that oftentimes officers that kill someone, they have had a long history of bad behavior or have killed multiple civilians, you know? So a lot of these things don't happen out of nowhere. In Ben's mind is if every time a person is killed by law enforcement, unjustifiably, it costs $20, 30000000 million that these departments will look a little bit harder at the people that they're hiring and that they're keeping on their police force. So that's one example. Also, it is some level of accountability because oftentimes the prosecutors in these cases 
as we've seen over and over again, they don't like to send cops to jail, basically, is an easy way of putting it. And so they find all these reasons why, you know, what happened in Louisville with Breonna Taylor was a great example of that, how the attorney general kind of gave this bogus evidence to a grand jury so that these cops don't get indicted. There's so much that is controlled by the local officials and it's really unfair. So in some ways it's saying there is some accountability held on one and even if we can't control it on the others. And then I think on a very practical level, when someone is taken away from their families, there is not only an incredible void in missing that person as a human being, but also a financial void. So if these individuals have children and they have families that they've been supporting, and one day they're snuffed out, who's going to take care of these families after that person is no longer with us? And what we know is if you know someone dies in a hospital because of malpractice, there's a tremendous settlement in something like that. If there's some accident somewhere and someone is harmed and they can't work anymore and a corporation is involved, there's a big settlement there. Why should the life of an individual that is taken by law enforcement, there should not be the same type of treatment in terms of thinking that person has a family that they still need to support and people that are dependent on them and that that life was stolen away. And now who's going to take on that responsibility? And you show some of these amounts and in these settlements, and honestly, they seem incredibly low. Even the historically high ones are very, very low, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. And the thing that's interesting about that, too, is, as you said, they seem very low compared to especially with some of these, you know, slip and fall accidents and all these corporations. And if a car has a recall... There's all these things that people get tremendous amounts of money for. And the idea that Ben is in it for the money even becomes more ludicrous because what it takes to fight these cases, the tremendous amount of resources that Ben Crump Law puts into these cases to fight them is so high. And the amount of high-level lawyers that spend years on these cases is so high. And Ben has built out very strategic legal teams. So he's not even the only lawyer on these there was 12 lawyers on the George Floyd case from my memory. So even in the historically high ones, if the legal team gets 30% of that, you split that amongst 12 lawyers minus all the fees and the mock trials and the evidence gathering and the independent autopsies and all the things that it takes to actually fight these cases in a very real way where they have a chance of winning. The profits are so minimal. It would debunk that entire idea about that he's in it for the money. When the criminal verdicts delivered in the Floyd case and the guilty verdicts come down, there's jubilation in the room where Ben and his colleagues are awaiting the decision. And I love the fact that after hugging everybody, Ben takes a fighter's stance and starts shadow boxing. It seems so spontaneous. I couldn't help but think of Muhammad Ali and other fighters, especially Muhammad Ali, who had to fight and win, not just in the ring against their opponents, but they had to fight a whole system of subjugation. What was your reaction to uh, seeing Ben, the boxer, in that moment? <laughs> what I love about that moment when that guilty verdict is handed down for Derek Chauvin it shows Ben and the most tragic joy that one could experience. This tragedy happened, but we all know that there could have been a not guilty verdict and what that alternative emotion would have been like. And I think that 
in a lot of ways, Ben didn't know what to do with himself. He just let his emotion and his feeling of victory run through his body. That he took that boxer stance and that fighting stance. It was just so special with such a raw emotion. And I think it said a lot about Ben that he didn't need to say any words. How did making this film change you? Oh my goodness. I will forever be a changed person after making this film. Understanding the level of corruption, brutality, unfairness, racism on the deepest, deepest, deepest level that exists in every corner of America. It's like, you know it, but until you're in it every single day with someone who is fighting the system, it's very easy to get discouraged and cynical that it's never gonna change. It's so overwhelming and it's relentless. When my job every day is to wake up and look at the news and see if someone was murdered by law enforcement, because then I may be getting a call to hear that I have to go on an assignment. That's when I think I started to really understand how often this happens. It happens every day, practically, whether we hear about it or not, whether it makes the news or not. Again, it's not only about excessive force murders, it's vigilante killings, it's a black Amazon employee left a package on someone's lawn and they, you know, it's incomprehensible as much as you know that it's all real and true. And so I think that that will forever change me, the way I see in this country, the hope or lack of that I have for change. But then seeing someone like Ben waking up every day and putting on that tie, ready for that phone call, something that he said one time, and it's not in the film, he was like, you wake up every day and someone else's emergency becomes your emergency. And I thought about, yeah, every day we wake up, we try to avoid emergencies. We do everything in our power to not have an emergency happen. Stay clear of emergencies. And when your job every day is to help people that are in an emergency, that says a lot about who you are as a person and your character and what you're made of. And I think that that's something I learned about Ben and what that actually means to be there for people, whether it's your profession or not. But going back to when Tara Brown said, he tells her, you are not alone. She was having an emergency. That was her emergency. And that's the scariest time when you don't know what to do. And someone that you feel that you can trust says you are not alone and they show up and they're there and they're there with you every step of the way. That's the most that we could all hope for if we ever find ourselves in any emergency. Well, thank you. And, you know, as extraordinary as the work that Ben is doing and as remarkable a person as he is, we need films like yours, which are so well-crafted and so insightful and poignant all at once that enables us to see people like Ben clearly and understand that the work they're doing can't just be them. As he says, it will be the moral people who will win this war. Well, are we gonna step up and be moral people? And certainly you have stepped up with this film, Nadia. So thank you so much and congratulations on the film. Thank you for saying that. Thank you, Ken, for talking all this time. It's been great. Thanks a lot. I can't wait to see what you do next. 